The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, newly uncovered secret tome reveals that the pulp novel came first. Time travelers send a paperback science fiction novel and a turtle back in time. Something goes wrong, and that's where hardcovers come from. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Larry Correa and John D. Brown this time, talking about a new science fiction novel by Larry Correa and John Brown that is called Gunrunner. And this is the first novel-length science fiction for either of these guys. It's really good. This There is adventure, there is shooting, there are mech battles, some Titanic ones, and an excellent premise with lots of cool ideas. Good science fiction, great Larry Correa storytelling and John D. Brown. And Larry and John will tell us all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, you have two more days, so grab these discounts. To honor the publication of The Macedonian Hazard, Bainey Books has big discounts this month on several Eric Flint time-twisting series. This month, we have $2 off The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlook, the prequel to The Macedonian Hazard, which is out this month, plus $1 off Time Spike by Eric Flint and Marilyn Kosmatka. And discounts on the Complete Arcane America series, co-created by Eric Flint. Uh, $2 off Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. And $1 off Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt. Finally, also a dollar off on Color of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Eitan Collin. Get these discounts by Sunday midnight at all online booksellers while January time stays twisted. And starting just after that, the Bain February hardcovers and trade paperbacks are hitting booksellers at the speed of speed reading or slow reading or whatever reading speed you do, even an ad mixture. What's the difference between a mixture and an ad mixture? I do not know, but at booksellers is Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown. Once Jackson Rook was a war hero, now he's a smuggler. His mission, still a top-of-the-line mech and deliver it to the far-flung planet of Swindle. But for all Rook's mercenary ways, there is a sense of tough, rough justice within him, and it seems that deep within the smuggler, the heart of a warrior still beats. Also out in February is Tiger Bright by T.C. McCarthy. Sam Kiar is a novitiate within a secret holy order tasked by fleet to infiltrate the home world of mankind's most dangerous enemy, the Somnin. If caught, her mission will bring war to Earth long before humanity is ready to confront this implacable enemy. Finally out now is The Jupiter Knife by DJ Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie. A dark and ancient conspiracy is afoot in a small town set amid endless hills of warped and twisted sandstone. 
local law enforcement seems powerless to stop a murderous magic from claiming victim after victim. Unraveling the plot will require a man of skill, a man equally at ease with magic and reason, a good man, a man of humility, but also a cunning man. The Jupiter Knife by DJ Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie, Tiger Bright by TC McCarthy, and Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown are available at booksellers everywhere. Hey, I want to welcome Larry Correa and John D. Brown to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, thanks for having us. Well, Larry Correa, as everyone should know by now, is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestselling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International, as well as Urban Fantasy Hardbold Adventure Saga, Grimnor Chronicles, uh, one of my personal favorites with uh, the first entry Hard Magic there and, and epic fantasy series, The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. That was the last, what was the, the Night House of Assassins? What's the last book? Uh, Destroyer was, of Worlds. Destroyer of Worlds. Yeah, that was excellent. Uh, excellent third entry in that. And uh, what else we say? With the, yeah, Son of the Black Sword, latest entry, House of Assassins is not right. It is Destroyer of Worlds. He's an avid gun user. That is Larry, an advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years. Before becoming a full-time writer, he was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. Um, Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family. John D. Brown writes action-packed thrillers and epic fantasies. He also lives in Utah, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, with characters you want to cheer for, he currently lives with his wife and four daughters in the hinterlands of Utah, where one encounters much fresh air, many good-hearted ranchers, and the occasional wolf. <laughs> so out now at booksellers everywhere is um, this excellent collaboration called Gunrunner. Um, and here's a, here's a picture of it, and here's another uh, 3D image of it that's actually real, it's sitting in my hands. Um, Gunrunner is out of booksellers everywhere. And this is science fiction, which is um, an interesting, uh, interesting thing for Larry, although um, not unheard of that he would write it. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a interesting step. And uh, John, you've been writing thrillers up till now. Is that? Uh, thrillers and epic fantasy. That's right. And epic fantasy. So what, what possessed you guys to get together and write science fiction. How did the conception of this thing start? Uh, John, you want to take this? Because I think it's kind yeah, of- Yeah, yeah, sure. It was originally John's idea, to, to this, not the book, but the project. So yeah, go ahead, man. So what happened is there's a, an annual uh, science fiction and fantasy convention out here in Utah called Life, the Universe, and Everything. And Larry and I had done presentations for them before about how to write. It's, it's more of a, a writer's convention than it is a fan's convention. So there's a lot of stuff there about how to write. And they, I, I pitched to them the idea that uh, we would do how to write an action plot. And Larry and I would do that together. And so normally, and we wanted to have audience participation, but normally you don't have enough time in these things. If you start totally from scratch, there's just no way you have enough time to get into it. And we were wanting to do plotting 
So we already had to have characters and a situation and a setting, et cetera. So uh, I went over to Larry's house and I said, okay, we got to get some of this story together so that we can show them how to do an action plot. And we're sitting there in his house uh, uh, on his couches across from each other. And at the time, his son, Joe, how old was he, Larry? Like 11, 10? No, he was like nine. Yeah, because he's nine? 16 now. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So or he's 10, nine yeah, years nine old. And he's over there listening in, right? Down on the stairs, you can see his head popping up. And I said, okay, so what do we want to do? What, what kind of an action plot? It's got to be fantasy, science fiction. And Larry says, hey, Joe, what's cool? And Joe pops up and says, giant robots, bandits, and murderers. <laughs> so Larry and I are like, that does sound cool, man. So 40 minutes later, we had the, the seed or the idea for this story. And it was all just for that conference. And so we took it to the conference and brainstormed with them about plot things and taught them about action and, and plot and story there. And then, uh, and then it just sat there. You know, we thought, oh man, this would make a great story, but it just sat there. And then sometime later, Larry, what happened? Tony contacted you? Well, I've, I've had a pretty good track record of um, having collaborations with other authors and uh, I've done a bunch now. And uh, the last one went really well. And so Tony Weisskopf came to me and she's like, hey, do you have any other collaborative ideas and any authors you'd like to team up with? And uh, there was two, but the very first thing I thought of was that that panel that we had done where we, you know, spent two hours basically outlining the book in front of a live studio audience. And I was like, yeah, I got her getting done with that, looking at you and thinking, this is really good. We could write the crap out of this. This would be a good book. Yeah. And uh, so I immediately pitched that to Tony. And then I went, then I went back to John. I was like, hey, John, by the way, <laughs> you want to write a science fiction novel for me real fast? <laughs> Oh, it, yeah. So it, it had a weird way it came about. And um, it's kind of fun. So in, in fact, uh, something that my son did before we did this wall. So while the 40 minutes while we were there coming up all the characters and basic plot at my house, my son started drawing pictures of the giant fighting robots. And uh, so we actually took one of the giant fighting robots and we stuck it as an illustration as drawn by a 10 year old and stuck it at the back of the book. Uh, just kind of there for the genesis. It's, it's just it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> One of the inspiration. The, did he draw the citadel or was it uh, the spider? It was the citadel. Well, he drew both. Ah. We actually we came up with the spider the very first thing because he went. I think the spider robot was his idea, if I remember right. And so it was just too cool to have that fight at the end. So he drew both, but the one that that John still had on file was the citadel, which at the time actually I think it had a different name. Uh Oh, oh, it was the hunter, but we couldn't call it that because I'm all known for the Monster Hunter series. And I was like, well, I can't have too many things featuring in the name Hunter. <laughs> right. And so Citadel actually came from my my little son, who is now he's nine now, who was just a baby then. And so I was like, hey, uh, Jake, what's a good name for uh what's a good name for a giant fighting robot? And he's like, Citadel. I was like, that's a good name, actually. <laughs> now we know where Larry gets all his uh, ideas. Right. He's just talking to his kids. Hey, people want to know idea? where you get your ideas. I need another Monster Hunter book. <laughs> she's moved out, and she's a published writer now too. So uh, she's got she's minding her own ideas. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she'll just start asking you for some, at Larry, and you'll be and you'll ask like your sons, and it'll all <laughs> come full circle. I just give her so my I'm second tier stuff. I save oh. the good stuff for you guys. Oh, I see. Well. <laughs> 
thanks. Um, so how did the collaboration process work beyond just that, that panel you did? Um, nope, Larry's look, so we lost a little bit. There you go. He's back. I think we lost Tony. Or, oh, I'm, I'm there. I didn't hear Tony. How did the collaboration process go beyond just the panel? Um, uh, well, so that's how it started. And then, and then like several years, nothing happened because we were both writing our own books. Um, uh, because when I first, uh, when I first met John and, uh, many years ago, we were both starting out and at the time he was writing epic fantasy. Um, and we toured around the country together. We, we paid our own way and did these mega road trip book tours. Um, so we knew each other pretty well. We knew our, we knew our creative processes pretty well. And so then, you know, fast forward years later, we had this idea. And so Tony asked me if I want to do any more collaborations with anybody. And I thought of John and uh, then the actual writing process, we got together again and we did uh, some more serious brainstorming. We actually came up with a, a pretty solid outline. We sent back and forth. Uh, we had to do a lot of world building and we actually had to do a lot of world building on the fly too. Cause like we had their background things, but neither one of us had like really thought it through. And then John actually did the rough draft. The initial rough draft uh, passed with John. Then he came back to me. So I did this, the, the next draft and then sent it back to John and then back and forth. And then I did the final final edits and that was it. So it was, it was, a, it was a ping pong ball of a collaboration. Did you guys find the, uh, the, the, the creation of science fiction world somewhat different process than creation of fantasy world or is it just sort of the same thing with with for me um, well i'll just say this for me the, the only thing that was different was that i you know Larry, i don't for me it just wasn't that different it was just that i had to think about scientific things and extrapolate those types of things and the ramifications of that versus fantasy type things it was all a matter of, well, what, what could it be like? And it was instead of a, a fantasy, an epic fantasy kingdom or set of kingdoms or stuff like that, it was multiple worlds and planets. So for me, the, uh, the process was similar, I felt. It was just a different topic matter. Yeah. Uh, I, but I want to go back and say something. I need to say this. Uh, you know, Larry talked about that collaboration process, and I... Uh, I don't know how other collaborations work, but I have to say one thing that I really appreciated was that it wasn't uh, and it wasn't a here's my idea, John. Now go be a, a typewriter monkey and write it. It truly was. What do you think's cool? Here's what I think's cool. Give me more. Whatever you think is cool. And we tried to take as many cool things as we both thought up and put it together. And of course, Larry is the lead writer on this was just so open to it. And so I, I just have to say, I, I, I was thoroughly uh, pleased, surprised and pleased because I had understood collaborations worked a little bit differently. Just the amount of input and the, the willingness he had to incorporate whatever ideas I had. Some of them didn't work. <laughs> some, some of them I know, you still love Bruce. You still love Bruce. He's gonna, he's gonna show up again there's something someday, I know. Yes. He just didn't work this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this uh anyway so we'll get back to i just have to we'll get back to this other thing so that for me the process was i i just do what i normally did it was just a different topic matter building out the world and making sure things made sense to us that was me i don't know larry what 
was yeah, different I agree, for you. It's, it's funny because the difference between fantasy world building and sci-fi world building really was uh, instead of magic, it was technology, really. And, and, and we had some things we had to really hammer out technology-wise, like what the technology level was, just because it really affected the story. Um, we had quite a few discussions early on about um, things like, um, like like how the travel works, how the communication works. Yeah. Because that, you're that very specific that about t- talking about how the the gates work, for instance, in the book. Yeah, it is actually interesting it's because on the, the original draft, uh, a lot of the stuff we kind of John and I kind of hand waved because we were just like, okay, this is a kind of a normal sci-fi trope that you use either you know faster than light travel this way or this way. And we kind of picked one. We went with it because we thought it worked good for the story with the whole smuggling angle. Uh, it was actually then Tony Weisskopf when she did her edits. When it went to Tony, she very specifically the stuff that she wanted. The biggest changes we had to make to this uh, were actually world building ones, where she wanted more uh, blatant explanations of certain items earlier in the book. Um, and she was saying she's like, the, and she said she said this too. She's like, she said it to me and John. She's like, you guys are your background is fantasy writers you just got to realize that sci-fi writers come to expect a certain amount more explanation of what the technology level is you know yeah. early so so she wanted you to david weberize it is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> we did that a little bit but i i can't david weberize that good true story and i think you were actually the guy doing the interview so one time me and david did an interview for um an anthology we're both in, the Liberty Con anthology. And what it was is both of us were supposed to read from our stories. Uh, and we had the same amount of time to read our stories. And uh, I read my whole story. And then David read the intro to his story. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's David, though. That's his nature. I'm I'm more programmed as a thriller guy. I, I Even my epic fantasy stuff's paced fast. And then John is the same way because he writes, um, his stuff is quick. I mean, it's it it, it just yeah. moves. Well, that's, there's a lot of there's a lot of cool SF ideas in here, but it also, I mean, this is this is a really a, a fast paced uh, adventure story. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about Jackson in particular, because everything really is about Jackson Rook. Um, this is his uh, this is his tale um, of what happens to him, and and it it sort of springs from his character. So maybe we can uh, start talking about who he is and and where how he came to be uh, at Swindle and and that sort of thing. Sure, uh, John, go ahead. You. Uh, well, you know, I think the core concept is that Jackson was a child soldier. He was forced into battle at a at a young age, and for whatever reason, he had an ability to be able to 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 merge with the wetware that they had, et cetera, with mechs that other people might not have been able to do. So here and he this is. This was kid. on the world of, uh, of gloss, right? It's not That's the world that takes place. So he grew up in this other, uh, and the galaxy has been settled. We, we should probably set up the galaxy a little bit here. And, and so, but there's still people that know about earth and there's an America. So it's not, where are we and how are we perhaps before we start talking about Jackson completely? Um, so, yeah. so it makes more sense. So I, I think I think what we wanted to do is we didn't want to project this out to like the year 3000, because at that point in time, either you've got to go dystopia or the, the technology is so far advanced, it's, you might as well be doing magic anyway, right? So we said probably some somewhere between now and the year uh, 2100, 
somebody's or or maybe around that time somebody's going to discover this gate technology and they develop it and so even though they've gone out to the stars and they've gone and explored different places it's taken some time Larry, I can't remember how many worlds we finally ended up with. Was it like we, 12? We, we detailed about 30 colonized 30? ones with a whole bunch more they were working on. So, so yeah, so it isn't like Star Trek where we're everywhere and there are hundreds and hundreds of worlds. They're still in an exploration phase. And uh, that was one of the things that we did a lot of work on is trying to figure out how did that happen? How did all the countries in the United States get together to do that? Um, so one of these worlds is gloss and and the, the situation there is we have a collectivist um, government that is trying to take over the everybody that's out there the colonies that are out there on gloss and jackson lives in one of the ones that's rebelling and fighting back and so th that's kind of his story and he's he's a child soldier he's he's impressed into into service and that's where he starts except things go south pretty fast for him yeah that, yeah it's the intro so like um so on the different worlds one of the things we did is uh we would have like different cultural influences on different planets or basically the idea was so they you know park colony ship somewhere over earth and load it up with you know whoever was trying to get off from that area and that's who's going to that world so like the naming conventions and most of gloss that either wound up being kind of pseudo scottish english or german uh it was just kind of jackson's home world and then uh, Swindle, uh, or actually the, the real name of Swindle, the planet that most of this story takes place is, is Lush, was what they originally named it because it was false advertising. Uh, yeah. And most of the settlers that came from there were basically- Lush. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, the real name was Lush. The, that's what the survey company called it. And it's beautiful. And they had pictures of how beautiful it is. And it really is a, a, an epic, awe-inspiring planet that everything on it wants to kill you including the air <laughs> like this planet sucks it is it is the worst planet ever and no one in their right mind would try to live there but but they they sold it and so the colonists there mostly came from a selection we had basically whatever war-torn country in the third world had a refugee crisis at the time that's where they loaded up colonists from uh they sent them to lush or, and the, the people call it swindle though because that's what it is so it was a swindle um so Jackson, uh, so after he leaves Gloss, he actually gets evacuated off of Gloss by one of our other main characters, who's the captain of uh, a smuggling vessel. Uh, yes, the collectivist one. I mean, he. Oh yeah. And on yeah. on his Big world, time. and he's a uh, he, he was part of the losing rebellion, and and uh, he got really messed up in the process too. And I don't want to give away too much because yeah, part this, of the, part of the technology twist, yeah. was yeah. human beings can plug directly into uh, various machines. Uh, because it's kind of a synergistic effect, basically, is what we came up with. So instead of uh, just a machine doing a machine thing or a human doing a human thing, machines could do things a lot more quickly and efficiently, but a human could do it more creatively uh, and also instinctually, which uh, when you put the two together, you get a synergistic effect. And Jackson was one of the best people at that ever. Um, and he got smuggled off this planet during the fall. I don't want to say too much what happened to him, but so the last few years, he's been on this crew of smugglers and and part of the, the idea with this crew is the captain actually he's not just a thief and a pirate he's actually got kind of got a code uh he's from earth originally he's from north carolina specifically um he's very much a man of honor and that he is very big on uh what's the antithesis of gun control 
<laughs> and so anywhere in the galaxy where there's people who aren't allowed to have things to protect themselves, he gets them those things. And he gets paid while doing it. And so this crew, they go around basically stealing advanced weapon systems and smuggling them to planets and people that aren't supposed to have them. And so that's that's when we join our crew and get on to our main adventures. They go to the planet Swindle. Um, it was a fun bunch. I, I really had a, it was a, it was a fun crew. Yeah. So we, I mean, we start with them stealing this thing um, to, so they're sort of, sort of interplanetary, interstellar Robin Hoods that, that do well. Kind of, but they get paid. <laughs> so, so yeah. um, I guess a lot of people that run guns probably think of themselves as Robin Hoods, but they get paid. So, but the, so uh, they, um, they, it, our, our initial uh, very thrilling opening is Jackson stealing this thing or getting it, or he's stealing it. <laughs> and he's surrounded by all these little uh, droids and things. And he's hooked up with um, this wonderful character, Jane, who is, um, who's a, a amazing hacker type on the ship. Um, and all of this is going on at once. Maybe since that, you know, that is just the opening, we could talk about that a lot um, and talk about how all that works. Cause that's the, the fun of the book carries through from that um, because there's Fifi and, and just a little, let's give a picture perhaps I think, I think the original idea for jane came from jo john you came up with jane originally right uh spe yeah and her name then i think was specter right we wanted we wanted somebody doing the uh the calling the shots from up above right like uh like one of those specter a1 ships somebody calling them down and she was controlling that yeah so she is an awesome character so what we did with her is she's she's actually kind of um I don't want to give too much away, spoilers, but basically she comes from the most advanced planet uh, that mankind has settled. And it's basically kind of a land of, um, well, not even the whole land, but they have one area of this world that's basically a land of mad scientists, right? And um, so Jane's background is she's basically an escaped genetic experiment. Um, she is fundamentally designed from the ground up to be what they refer to as a combat controller. Uh, for their army. So basically her job is to operate all the system or coordinate all the systems and little killer robots, lots and lots of little killer robots. Um, and uh, Jane, Jane escapes this and it's not a, it's not a pleasant place. And actually I got some, I expect some Easter eggs in there that tie into one of my other series, but uh, no one's caught those yet. So I'm not going to say anything. Um, but yeah, no, so Jane, Jane has run away basically and joined the crew of the Tar Heel. She's, she's part of the smuggling crew. And her, her job is she's the, she's the main basically information warfare officer on the ship. She's the person that coordinates all their heists. And, uh, but she is, she, she is a hacking machine. And also she is probably the most dangerous person on the whole crew. And the thing is all her little robots that she has that she builds for fun. Um, like little bears with chainsaw arms and stuff. She makes them all cute. Um, so, so I don't know. I think I think we came up with that. So we started making all the robots like real chibi, you know, like like little jet jet animation, like super cute. Uh, and so they've all got names. And Fifi's a Fifi's a recurring character. Uh, Fifi's this little pea-sized robot, little little robot that just goes around doing chores basically. And but Fifi is so lethal. <laughs> Yeah. Give a little well, pea-sized robot a laser. Don't don't mess with Fifi. <laughs> Fifi will just scalpel open your neck, man. She is 
<laughs> no, Jane's one of my favorite characters. She she, she was she was actually a lot of fun. And she's, uh, I really enjoyed writing her. And Jackson's Jackson's totally in love with her. Um, and oh yeah, totally. But uh, in fact, she's probably the only girl he could love, given who he is. But um, it's just not going to get reciprocated. Um, at least things will have to change dramatically if it ever. Yeah, she's got she's got some issues to work through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So does he. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. That's why they, that's why those well, two work well. Kind of a crew of misfits in a way, right? There's the captain. There's some, and there's Tui, the big, uh, the big fellow who can crush you. Um, tell us, <laughs> tell us about him. He's he's uh, what, Minoan. What is he? He's, he's Samoan. Samoan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tui actually. He's a philosopher. He's a thinker at the and a cool, like chill guy who could crush you instantly. He's one of the he's one of the, actually the first characters John and I came up with when we were brainstorming this, uh, because one of the things we wanted to have was like a, basically a boarding party slash, you know, basically the, the, the trigger pullers of the crew, because Jackson is not a Jackson fights with robots. Right. And, and Jane is a hacker. Right. She, uh, and we need a true. We need some trigger pullers uh, for this. And so we came up with two originally. And the thing about him is he is the scariest dude ever. And he's actually genetically modified, too, because he's former military uh, uh he was a, he was a he was a combat soldier on i believe it yeah he was from earth and um and so he he's been he's been modified for combat like he has reinforced bones uh you know he has nanites in his bloodstream to help him heal faster he can like john called it the monkey uh the monkey mods the the monkey genes basically i mean the dude the dude is like super strong and dangerous but he also um we made him like uh he's he's devoutly religious and just a really nice guy he's just a, he's just a swell guy and he's kind of like he kind of takes on like the older brother part for jackson and it, we, as we get in the story we find out this because too we actually had a little brother that he lost uh, and so he's kind of taking jackson under his wing as his little brother uh because you know to he's to he's older experience been around been there done that uh just a great guy but like you know he got his he got a philosophy degree uh <laughs> You know, he's just a great character. I, I love that guy. You know, what did you call the, his tats, John? What was that? What did you call his tats? Oh, crazy pants of the ancestors. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because all those traditional tats that the the Samoans do, right, and and those uh, Islanders do, and and we just love. Them. I I uh, you know I've I've worked with uh, folks from the islands, and there's a great community here in Utah, and I think we were just we thought it'd be awesome to, to have somebody like that in the story. I had a, I had, when I was on a, uh, a mission for my church, one of my companions was from Hawaii and, and had some of that ancestry in, in him. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting when we were thinking this up was that uh, we had know, a I was just, we wanted a crew. I just had a picture of Tui coming around as a Mormon missionary and I would convert if he <laughs> told me it was necessary. <laughs> You'd be like, uh, sure, whatever you say, man. Yes, do we? I'm sorry. Uh, one of the things that was interesting way back when, when we were doing the uh, when we were doing the conference, the the workshop at that at that uh, science fiction and fantasy convention, is we have a team, and so there's a lot of different ways that you could figure out how to have a team and how to work the cast. 
but you always want to have differences in the characters. You don't want the cast to be all the same. And at that time, Larry's like, hey, let's just do a five-man band. And, and so we did the five-man band. We mixed up the roles and changed them a little bit. But that's part of how we came up with why do we need somebody like Tui? You know, what's Jackson? Oh, he's going to be, he's going to be the, uh, uh, he's got his role. Jane has her role. And so it was uh, an interesting way, an interesting trope to use and then start tweaking just to have fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah then that kind of like fell out when we had to start nailing down just what the, what the, how big the crew was. Uh, and so that expanded dramatically but we still had just kind of the, the, the main core group is what we used for most of the story but we had to add more boarding party people that actually became like uh pretty major characters that had quite a bit of stuff to do yeah uh cat cat and bushy um they wound up in there a lot and they were just like minor characters to start and they went up in there a lot we had to add more characters we went because we we're like oh well what's the ship gonna do with this oh i guess we need, she needs someone to do that All right <laughs> Yeah. And Larry had Larry had this list of all of these. What what do you call them? The charity red shirt names. Oh yeah, charity red. Okay, so I do these things where I do charity things where I, if you donate money, I think last time we had like like two hundred bucks. If you donated two hundred bucks, uh, it was actually we paid for a guy's spinal surgery. Uh, and the one before this, we paid for a kid's uh, kidney dialysis and took to get a, get a transplant. So my fans will kick in money and they give just give me their name and a brief description of themselves. And then I try to work, and then I work them into a book and they might just be on one paragraph. They might show up and die horribly, or they might wind up with a great big role, you know, then they've lived for a long time. But this last time I got so, it was so popular that I actually had hundreds of names. So when we, we paid for the whole surgery, right? Um, great, yeah. It was awesome. But the thing is, I've been using the same list of names for like the last four years trying to get through them. So I gave John this big list. I was like, here, John. everybody everybody who is in space (laughs) they are on this list (laughs) well and so a lot of a lot of these characters are from the charity red shirt list and and what was cool is that i I, there were they you know they would put in little things about themselves and of course they had their own names i i don't know that i would ever come up with these names on my own or these little background things about i think jink jeep prunkard was was one of them he oh, has yeah. this big dog, so he shows up. It's this great character, this nasty dude with this big old nasty dog. But that just came from Larry's red shirt list, right? Yeah, it and goes. actually, the guy has the best bad guy space pirate name ever. His name is Jeet Prunkard. Yeah, and I was like, that is a perfect space pirate name. Holy crap! Uh, Sam Fain, uh, who is one of the main, he's like the the main bad guy's right hand man. Yeah, it's funny. So I saw him on, or so I, I was posting about this book the other day, and I see this guy posting, and he's like, "Yeah, I haven't read this." I was like, "Well, dude, yeah, I, you're on the red shirt list. You because you're like one of the main villains who gets the best faction fight scenes." And he's like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, you better hurry up and read it." <laughs> Lucky Sam. So, well, all right. So they steal the Citadel uh, at the beginning of the book uh, with with a little bit of worry and trouble and and near-death experiences and uh and and what is the citadel and what are they going to do with it and let's start talking a little bit about the war about warlord not the oh, sure. warlord warlord yeah warlord um yeah. okay so this so the way we set this up there's a bunch of different types of advanced weapon systems but we wanted to do a story about mechs and part of the thing about 
the idea of a mech, you know, a walking battle robot. Realistically, like on Earth, that would struggle, uh, even with advanced technology, because tall things are easier to kill than short things. The more higher you stick up over the horizon, the easier you are to blast. Wow, However, Larry, you must be very vulnerable. Oh, yeah, no, I, in <laughs> combat, I'd be the first one shot. I mean, I'm 6'5". Everybody else just hide behind me and use me as a meat sandbag. Mm. But um, so the idea was we needed to design, when we designed Swindle, we needed an environment where mechs would shine, where you couldn't use a tracked vehicle um, like a tank. And so Swindle is like super rough terrain and, and very, very rugged. It has, it has these giant trees that grow everywhere um and and super rough terrain so it's almost important and the ground it rains constantly and it's muddy and there's lightning strikes and the air is poisonous but um there there's a colony there and so most people actually live on orbitals around the place but swindle is home to an extremely valuable resource planet that has this really valuable resource on the surface that grows there it's a biological process that grows in the trees and the great trees that live there and it's a very valuable compound that's used in gate manufacture. And it occurs in a few places in the galaxy, but Swindle has the best reliable supply. Problem is, um, the surface of Swindle is super inhospitable for humans. So the settlers live in these giant orbitals around the planet. And then they go down in teams of harvesters for a couple of days at a time, harvest much of the, of the CX as they can, and they fly out. Uh, and the thing is, the wildlife on Swindle is all super vicious and gigantic. So they have all sorts of different kinds of horrible, horrible monsters. And the best weapons to defend the teams of harvesters are mechs. So they use these, uh, because the mechs can walk around or anything, and they can jump from tree to tree. Tracked vehicles suck on Swindle. And so, but Swindle, because it's an independent colony, is not allowed to have these advanced war machines. So the crew has been smuggling mechs to them now the guy that runs swindle is just known as the warlord and uh, he doesn't have a name but he's got this carefully crafted backstory about how he's a poor orphan boy who went to swindle and fought to defend the colonists it's mostly fabricated bull as we discover but um he's 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 a dictator who rules with an iron fist um and but swindle is stuck in the space between several superpowers all of them want this place, but none of them want to risk it for a war between the others. And as long as the warlord keeps the CX gas flowing, they remain independent. Uh, and so he does whatever he wants. And these guys supply him with weapons. And uh, but when they get there, they discover that, you know, they discover just how bad things really are. And that's when our story takes a very sideways turn. Yeah. And um, the uh, the opponent that they face at first is uh, is the mecca faces these these horrible beasts like um the kinsella <laughs> and the um what are some other names of these things they're uh calibans the Kinsella. and kinsella that's another one of those charity red shirt names <laughs> I yeah, said, he was a scientist. we're not gonna kill you off things. we're making you those nasty monsters man <laughs> Well, they're named after him. He, he was the biologist. Oh, that's right. Him. That's right. And then got that's right. <laughs> he did get killed. Yeah. And then he got, and then they were named after him. That's how we did it. Oh, man. And then the Caliban. Uh, and then the thing they just straight up called Kaiju, which wound up on the cover of the book. Uh, 
actually the description of the monster changed in the manuscript after the book cover after after we saw the painting of the book cover we're like oh all right we can make the monster in the book look more like that <laughs> a little retroactive editing there yeah that's cool cover who did this let's see quickly oh, john what were the what were the little killer uh what were those little Dominant. killer bugs that, that, that lived in the tree um what were those called uh, the Fifi, the Fifi fought. Yeah. Oh, those were so, those were so, Wallerts. Wallerts, that's right. Oh, these things are so nasty. Just, yeah. Just yeah, well, and I think the fun of it was, as Larry said, we wanted a planet that was just nasty. Everything was trying to kill you. Everything was dangerous. It was inhospitable. It's difficult. It's difficult to be there. Um, but there's this very valued and prized uh, substance that's out there. You know, and it, it's interesting now that I think about it, we didn't have this in mind. But you think about the planet Dune in that series. It's it's kind of like that. It's that same like kind of, it's not yeah. Dune. I, yeah. This isn't Dune, but it's still that, you know, Dune was inhospitable. It was difficult to live there. And yet there was this prized thing there. So it's interesting that this, this trope yeah. kind of shows up. This feels like well, a then, like a evil rainforest kind of feel to it to me. Opposite oh, of Dune, yeah. it was very pretty. Well, the thing is, it doesn't work like Dune because our place is moist. <laughs> Everything's wet, <laughs> yeah, and poison. Yeah. Um, and then, and then when the when the, then when the workers go home, though, they fly up to the orbital, which is Big Town, which is basically Space Mogadishu. I mean, it's like so the orbital that everybody lives on, then a couple hundred thousand people live on this orbital, and it sucks. <laughs> It is such a terrible place. It is like this cyberpunk dystopia third world nation of a space station. It's rough. Yeah. Except for the yeah, warlord the good guys. Nice palace. Yeah. Do, do most of the originals they they live on the planet or they live there on the space station as well? I can't quite both. Uh okay, so the originals were the first. Uh, the first people to settle on Swindle and uh, before before the, the harvesters really kicked up. And basically the warlord has shoved them aside. So basically legally the land belongs to them that they're harvesting on, but they've been kicked to the corner. And so we meet the originals as they go. And at first our, our characters think they're a terrorist organization um, that's just trying to sabotage Big Town. And in reality, they're, they're the original settlers who got kicked to the curb by warlord. Yeah. And so some of them live uh, on the surface and then some of them live on Big Town. But the ones in Big Town have to keep it secret, basically. They're uh, kind of an underground society uh, because uh, Warlord has a pretty ruthless secret police and roots out, uh, just ruthlessly roots out anybody who conspires against him. Yeah, there's a heart-wrenching scene where we, we understand just how, you know, really evil this guy is in the book when Wolf... Uh, uh, one of the originals has to face his brother. Um, so the, this, these are our good guys that, that our good guy, that our heroes are going to help. Um, if, if they can. Well, good, good in quotation. Good in the sense that, <laughs> that they're getting their butts kicked by somebody that's even worse than. Yeah. Swindle doesn't exactly breed goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Fact, well, I mean, Jackson's your basic wily thief, so um, he's our main character. Yeah. yeah, our nicest characters are mercenaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have a certain code. That's right. 
You know, one of the interesting things about Swindle, I'll just add, is part of the backstory. I don't know that this, I think we might make a reference to this in the book. I can't remember, but part of the backstory was, you know, the, the settlers went out there and they were all just like, crap, right? This is, is total misrepresentation, total fraud. What are we going to do now? Some of them, it was their life savings. So how are we ever going to get out of here and get back? So they were cobbling together these orbitals instead of going down on the planet. And there was a, there was a territorial government. But of course, in that situation, uh, different factions arose, different gangs. The, the government, the territorial government collapsed. And that's when we had all these gang wars. Now, this is all just backstory. And somehow, curiously, Warlord came out on top, him and his group. And so that's kind of the backstory. It's been this dog-eat-dog -dog place since the inception. And uh, difficult people. but And yet, there are some fun things about it. You know, Larry, when we were doing it, there are a lot of different ways that you can do orbitals and space pl places. And... Um, uh, Larry's idea was, you know, he's like, ah, I just think it'd be fun if it was like a, you know, like you take a magazine and roll it around in a tube. And if, and if we could see the buildings coming down from up above and it isn't so big that they seem so far away, but they're just right there. So, you know, here you are spinning um, with that. And then you got all these ramshackle, there's no building codes. People are just putting together what they can. You know, you think about those ghettos, those poor places in in Rio or down in South America, whatever, where they're just building however they can with whatever materials they can use. That's, that's, uh, that's big town above Swindle. So it was an interesting for me, just the backstory and, and knowing, knowing that place and developing that I thought was, was really fun. Of course, you can't put all of that in a book, but it's interesting backstory. It's like a, a third world, literally, that is a third world. <laughs> Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a cool, uh, it's kind of like, uh, and it, if you had mercenaries in a third world country, but in just taken to the archetypical level. So it's really cool. And your, your climax, you got, you know, you got mechas battling these horrible things. Um, you know, we get how it all comes out. We don't know. Uh, but you got mecha battling mecha. Um, it's so much fun to, that was a pretty epic final fight scene. That was, the action is just, uh, even by my standards, I'm pretty jaded, but that was, <laughs> I was pretty proud of that final fight scene. It just goes and it bounces back and forth. It's, it's, it's great. Um, well, what else do we want to say about the book and what are you guys working on now? Uh, well, honestly, like I say, on the book is, like I said, I, um, one thing I like to point out is like a lot of my fans know me from like urban fantasy or fantasy. Uh, this is my first foray into sci-fi, though I have written a bunch of short fiction for various anthologies that are science fiction, but this is my first novel length sci-fi project and I, I just enjoyed it immensely. I, I just had a really good yeah. time. That was fun. It's action. It's fun characters. It's action. It's in space. We tried to come up, you know, there's some of the standard uh, science fiction ideas, future ideas. We've tried to come up with other twists on those, <laughs> on those ideas that uh, I just had a blast. It, it was fun from start to finish. I think that's the, the main thing. That, that reminds me though, I need to mail a copy of Gunrunner Nick Searcy because for those who don't know where Captain Holloway in our head 
John and I have thought in this, you know, it's like when you're doing a collaboration, you got to kind of like nail down what a character is like. Like, so you pick an actor that you both know to be that character. And so Captain Holloway is just Nick Cersei, like straight up. It's just Nick. So I got to send Nick a book because he's a fan anyway. <laughs> but that's also how the ship wound up being from North Carolina. That's how that yeah. came about. So yeah, yeah. he's got to get a copy. Cool guy. So uh, what are you working on, John? So I've got a series, an epic fantasy series. Um, it's basically, it's called The Drovers. And it's basically, I don't, how, Lord of the Rings meets uh, John Wayne's The Cowboys, I guess is how, how you might describe it. But uh, I'm working on the, the third book in that series. And then I'll do the fourth. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm most of the way through the third book of that. It's a fun little series. And then I might go back and probably do another one of my contemporary action thrillers with that character, Frank Shaw. That's that's what's in my near future. Very cool. And uh, for, uh, Larry- For, uh, those, of the, for those of you guys who haven't read John's thriller, good. the first one I think is Bad Penny, right, John? Yeah. Check that, it's really good. It's really, really good. And there's a, there's a guy named Korea in it who's really awesome, the same. <laughs> Pinto, Pinto, Pinto Korea. Somebody, yeah. It's a distant relation. Does he mean yeah, a horrible death or does he's he? He's primo. He's a cousin. <laughs> um, and then I'm working on currently right now, I'm working on Monster Hunter Bloodlines, which is the next book in the Monster Hunter series. Uh, that was actually due a little while ago and I blew past the deadline. First deadline I've missed in 12 years. Uh, so I'll have that done in February and into, into band. It comes out in August is the release date. So the, um, and then after that, I have another collaboration. The other, the second collaboration I pitched to Tony Weisskopf when I pitched this one, uh, it's a, a dark fantasy series that I'm writing with a guy named Steve Diamond, who's oh, primarily yeah. a horror writer. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, Tony, you've read Steve stuff, you know. Yeah, Steve's yeah, really yeah. He's, he's dark and fun character as a person too. So oh yeah, I can't yeah. wait to uh, see what comes out of that. And that was kind of a World War One setting with like evil fairy tale magic. And it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, so that, and then I have got, uh, uh, two more books in the saga, the forgotten warrior. So there's uh, two, so that, that, uh, I pitched it originally as a trilogy. It turned into a five book series. <laughs> in fact, Tony Weisskopf saw that going in. Cause I gave her the overall outline, the arc for the whole series. And, uh, she laughed at me and she said, uh, you'll never fit that into three books. <laughs> and then sure enough because uh, book two and three actually were my outline for book two so that, that's how that goes um, and so that's what I've got going on I got another Grimoire trilogy I'm working on but haven't officially started yet that's just in the outlining process cool 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 so um, well uh, this one is incredibly fun and I hope that uh, both of you guys delve back into science fiction um, at, at some point it's called um, it's called Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown it's a booksellers everywhere um, Larry and John thanks so much for uh, talking with us about Gunrunner you bet well thanks for having us Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. 
uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Access Boom. Industrial Annex Number 6. Beowulf Alpha. Beowulf System. Yes! Jacques Benton and Ramirez each you hissed. He'd finally gotten the undersized comm display in the bare-bones compartment tied into the same feed as the far larger display in the Jennifer O'Toole room, just in time to watch the mailed fist of Corey McAvoy's Mark 23's crash down on TF-790, of Vincent Capriotti's 400-plus battlecruisers, 37 survived to cross the limit outbound. He couldn't tell how many of the ships whose impeller signatures had just disappeared might still survive, more or less, as crippled hulks. But he knew very few of the Sollies who'd just attacked his star system were going home again. None of which made the casualties Beowulf had suffered any less painful. True, they could have been enormously worse, but what they had were quite bad enough. Bark Chewersbane's hiss mirrored his own. The cat didn't have to understand the display's icons to realize what had just happened. And while the two of them might not share honors or Whitehaven's adoption bond, they'd been together quite a while now. He recognized the tree cat's vengeful satisfaction as Bark Chewersbane sat on the edge of the bare desk beside him, and he reached out to stroke his friend's silken fur. They put some thought into this, Whitehaven said, leaning against the bulkhead behind Benton Ramirez Ichu and looking over his shoulder while Stimson stood just inside the small compartment's door. Even here, Whitehaven thought dryly, Tobias was guarding his back. There wasn't another chair. This was technically a satellite management station, but from the looks of things, no one had used it in a long, long time. Which, he reflected, given the state of the lift shafts, which theoretically served it, shouldn't have surprised him. I mean, they put a lot of thought into it, he said thoughtfully, cradling Samantha in his arms as Benton Ramirez Ichu turned his head to look up at him. What worries me the most is that they clearly knew exactly what they were gunning for. If Corey hadn't deployed the inner system block ships, despite the fact that we all knew they were going for Cassandra, it damned well would have worked. It's not like we didn't get hurt anyway, I know that. But the truth is, we were incredibly lucky, Jacques. I know, the Beowulfer acknowledged. And you're right, they did know exactly what to target. The question in my mind is how old their data was. I mean, was it from someone that got repatriated after the referendum? Or are they still getting information feeds from right here in Beowulf? Exactly what I was thinking. Whitehaven nodded. On the one hand, I guess it really doesn't matter all that much, but I really would like to know. And if there is an ongoing information flow? If there is, we need to find it and plug it, Benton Ramirez Ichu finished for him. I'd say that's going to be more up my alley than yours, though. No argument there. Whitehaven snorted. Believe me, all I want to do is get a damned maintenance crew out here to spring us so I can get started on just that. 
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a fragmentary grenade charged with glad tidings and great joy and a bunch of cute baby alligators plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Larry Correa and John D. Brown, authors of Gunrunner. Please join us next time here at the Hammering Art of Science Fiction and Fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Hey, it's Tony Daniel. I wanted to tell you about something new One Bane author is up to, namely me. Ideas, science, entertainment, outdoors and travel, writing advice. Have you ever wondered what a guy show like Top Gear would look like crossed with say a show about science science fiction and ideas well if that seems intriguing you might be interested in rulers in hell a podcast and community featuring me rob fury and bob krueger these are all writers who have appeared on the bane website before and have been on the podcast with us rob is a world traveling scientist an expert on spiders and arachnids and Associate Provost at Harrisburg University in Pennsylvania. Bob Kruger is one of the original writers of EverQuest, Magic the Gathering, and founder of eBook Pioneer Electric Story, as well as a database coder of extraordinary ability who keeps the world working. And I'm me. Watch us perform rescue and recovery on the world of ideas, then handle, we call it the big what if. It's a hypothetical of ginormous proportions that we take on every week. Rulers in Hell is a video podcast, but also it's an exclusive community that I'm inviting you to join. Monthly subscriptions are $3.65, which is the average U.S. price of a medium latte. In fact, every month I'm going to adjust the subscriptions to whatever the price of a latte is in the United States. Come and reign with us. Comment freely on the site, get special reports, and send us big what-ifs to expound upon or bloviate upon. The first month is free with promo code DANIELDOLLAR. So you just put that in, and you will get one month free. We launch the podcast next week. So go to rulersinhell.com, rulersinhell.com, and check it out. think you might like it.